This program is brought to you by Emory University. And we, we're, I'm delighted so many students are here knowing that you have a very full life uh, at this time of semester. So welcome. Uh, and I hope you all who uh, registered for lunch have received a lunch and uh, are, are pursuing uh, it now. And I'd like to have a blessing and then turn the um, conversation over to Luke Timothy Johnson, who will introduce our esteemed speaker for today. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the rich blessings of this time together, to love you with our minds and our hearts, all at the same time in rich discussion and stimulating presentations. Thank you for the food that we have today to sustain our bodies and use our bodies in service to you uh, throughout today and uh, the coming days. Thank you for the wonders of this great day, the extraordinary creation that surrounds us, the people who've prepared this food and made arrangements that it gets to us for this lunchtime gathering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to introduce Candida Moss to you. Um, who will be lecturing on the topic of voluntary martyrdom in the early church. Uh, professor Moss is uh, a professor at Notre Dame. Uh, she began there as uh, assistant professor in the liberal studies uh, program at Notre Dame and is now in the Department of Theology. She received a BA and MA from the University of Oxford, an MAR and an MA and a PhD from Yale University. Uh, her dissertation um, is called, the, well, was published as The Other Christs Imitating Jesus in Ancient Christian Ideologies of Martyrdom. And it is this book that led to the awarding of the John Templeton Award for Theological Promise, uh, which has generously uh, enabled us to invite her to participate uh, with us and to talk on that topic. Before allowing her to speak, I would like also to point out that um, she's had quite a, an extraordinary record of research and publication for someone who only received her PhD in the year 2008. In addition to this book published by Yale University Press, she has in press another monograph, which is published by Yale in the Anchor uh, Bible library um, on ancient Christian martyrdom, ancient practices, ideologies, and traditions, which is a much broader uh, survey. She has co-edited a book on disability studies and biblical literature, um, and she has been assigned the Hermeneia commentary on the Acts of the Martyrs. So in the midst of this highly productive life, um, she has found time to join us and to talk on a topic which I know is dear to her and to which she has devoted much attention. Uh, please join me in welcoming Candida Moss. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for that um, very generous introduction. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming. 
I know that free food is a great motivation when one is in graduate school, but you still could have grabbed the bags and left. So <laughs> I very much appreciate you all staying. In the Acta Proconsularia Sancti Cipriani, the account of the trial of Cyprian, the third century bishop of Carthage, the protagonist is asked by the proconsul to supply the names of other members of the Carthaginian clergy. Cyprian declines, responding in the following way. Since our discipline forbids anyone to surrender voluntarily, and since you strongly disapprove of it as well, they, the presbyters, may not give themselves up. But if they are sought out by you, they will be found. In modern histories of martyrdom, Cyprian's distinction has stuck. The practice of offering oneself for martyrdom has been isolated from normative martyrdom as something particular and different. This practice, variously termed voluntary martyrdom or provoked martyrdom, is broadly defined as the bringing about of one's death either by presenting oneself to the authorities or by the unsolicited disclosure of one's Christian identity. Those scholars who are uncomfortable with the use of the term voluntary martyrdom object to its use primarily on the grounds that they think that martyrdom is intrinsically voluntary. In his delicate discussion of rabbinic martyrological discourse, for instance, Daniel Boyarin writes that provoked martyrdom is a better term, in my opinion, than voluntary martyrdom, because if martyrdom is not voluntary, it is not martyrdom. If Boyarin raises a note of caution about the use of the category of voluntary martyrdom, he does so in the service of protecting and preserving a specific notion of martyrdom, in which a person must choose death in order to qualify as a martyr. He does not query the existence of this as a separate practice per se. Thus, while the specifics of the terminology are debated, there is a general agreement among scholars that voluntary or provoked martyrdom was a discrete phenomenon in the ancient world. The purpose of my paper today is to trace the emergence of voluntary martyrdom as a category distinct from true or normative martyrdom. My interests lie in the discursive production of voluntary martyrdom, not in the historical evidence for prosecution and execution. For the purposes of this paper, whether or not people really offered themselves for martyrdom according to whatever definition of self-offering we might employ is irrelevant. I am interested in those ancient mentalities and taxonomies that would have marked voluntary martyrdom as something discreet and different. In inquisitive terms, then, my paper asks when, in what contexts, and for what purposes was the concept of voluntary martyrdom produced? At risk of sharing my hand, I will in part argue that prior to Clement of Alexandria, there is no evidence to suggest that early Christians distinguished between forms of martyrdom on the grounds of volunteerism or provocation. I want to begin, however, not with Clement, nor Tertullian, nor even the much maligned Montanists, but with the emergence of the category of voluntary martyrdom in modern scholarship. From here, we will work our way back 
to the appearance of the concept in the ancient world. The category of voluntary martyr has grown out of scholarly discussions about the solidification of the title martyr or martus in ancient Christianity. Yet the easy way in which the term voluntary martyr is used obscures the fact that it has no ancient corollary. In the English language, the notion and terminology of voluntary martyrdom predates scholarly investigation of the early church. It emerges out of the religious reforms and conflicts in 17th century England, a period in which both Roman Catholics and non-conforming Protestants utilized the discourse of voluntary martyrdom both in their self-presentation and in their narration of the history of martyrdom, a history in which they believe themselves to be participating. The primary way in which the term was used, however, was not to describe religious practices, um, sorry, was to describe religious practices that were in some sense self-denying. Self-denying either because they pertain to the body or because they might invite some punishment. The use of the notion of voluntary martyrdom in the writings of nonconformist Protestants, such as Nicholas Billingsley, the author of the famous tractate, The Brachymartyrologica, serves to cast volunteerism as activism. In this work, he describes Antiochus Epiphanes IV as condemning the actions of the Maccabean martyrs for being voluntary and active. That the villain of his piece exhorts the Maccabees to passivity and encourages those in the audience to shrug off the mantle of, peace, of peaceful protest. The implicit message in this text is that volunteerism and active resistance are desirable and encouraged. And it's this that he describes as voluntary martyrdom. Billingsley used the concept of voluntary martyrdom to refer to his own refusal to wear his vestments correctly or to use the hymns designated by the service book. The idea of voluntary martyrdom passed from sermons into scholarship with Edward Gibbon's famous decline and fall of the Roman Empire, where the term is used to describe the ascetic lifestyle choices of the monastics. Martyrdom itself is, in Gibbon's estimation, intrinsically provocative. He describes the actions of those who sought martyrdom as blind and rash. Gibbon's negative appraisal of the phenomenon of martyrdom in general set the tone for subsequent discussion. But it was in the 19th century and under pressure from scientific inquiry that classical scholars began to distill the category into an elemental form and offer an explanation for its occurrence. In an essay on the idol-destroying late third century martyr Polyuctus, for example, the French epigrapher and pious hagiographer Edmund Leblanc contrasts the views of church leaders with the laity, saying this, in the Christian camp, the crowd had its passions and sometimes too easily hailed as martyrs those whom the church itself refused to include among its saints. For Leblanc, the acclamation of Polyuctus as a saint was the fault of the passionate, thoughtless crowd. 
Leblanc adds that, quote, according to the strict rules and requirements in ancient times, Polyuctus would not be a martyr. The very act of violence which made his memory famous would exclude him from all right to this title. Leblanc's assumption is that ecclesiastical rules were enforced in ancient times, but were somehow overturned by the unruly, passionate rabble. Voluntary martyrdom is situated within a particular social sphere. The people condone this behavior. The church, in Leblanc's summary, is a hapless bystander. Conceptually, Leblanc's narrative pushes voluntary martyrdom outside of orthodoxy. There's actually a kind of irony here. In martyrdom accounts, it's the unruly crowd who are responsible for getting Christians martyred. In, in Leblanc's um, estimation, it's now the mob who's responsible for making executed Christian martyrs. The apposition of an as yet non-existing thinking and well-regulated church with an unruly, passionate crowd invokes the binary of the educated elite and the unthinking populace. That there were no such strict regulations in antiquity, indeed, Polyuctus was a bishop, demonstrates the extent to which the church here is a cipher for Leblanc's own well-ordered Roman Catholic church. The distinction between true and false martyrdom is grounded in social status and class. Leblanc may not have the vocabulary to discard certain forms of martyrdom, but he certainly has the ideals. The concern to distinguish between voluntary martyrdom and true martyrdom is common in second, secondary literature after the 19th century. In his influential essays, Why Were the Early Christians Persecuted and Voluntary Martyrdom in the Early Church, English scholar Geoffrey Edward Morris de St. Croix takes a genealogical approach. He suggests that voluntary martyrdom was not a rare heretical practice and argues, albeit reservedly, that it was likely to have begun much earlier in the Maccabean period. He still insists upon a genealogical thread and traces voluntary martyrdom from the Maccabees to the, quote, abnormal mentality of Ignatius of Antioch. This genealogy serves to essentialize voluntary martyrdom, to constrain it as a distinct and, to St. Croix, less intelligent form of martyrdom, and to account for its popularity in the third and fourth centuries. Like Leblanc, St. Croix locates the source of this error in the, quote, mass of simple believers. If the church was prepared to forgive and even applaud all such infractions of discipline, why did it condemn them without qualification beforehand? Why did it not merely issue a warning against the dangers of volunteering for martyrdom, both to the individuals concerned and to their church? The answer, surely is that in practically all cases of voluntary martyrdom, the mass of simple believers force the hand of their more intelligent and worldly wise leaders and insisted upon having the volunteers venerated just like other martyrs. In Croy's statement betrays two commitments. To a notion of a stable, uniform, definitive church 
that acted decisively and with conviction, and to a polarization of simple believers and intelligent leaders. Even though he is prepared in a footnote to describe the tension between martyrs and non-martyrs more ambiguously as a contradiction between theory and practice, his dichotomy unwittingly reinforces LeBlanc's classism and stereotypes. This is surprising to those of us who think of LeBlanc as the sort of the great Marxist scholar of antiquity. How did he end up here? St. Croix's picture of ancient martyrdom is, however, more complex than a mere binary of true and voluntary martyrs. In his typology, St. Croix includes both voluntary martyrs and quasi-volunteers, and also, somewhat separately, religious suicide. The first category of voluntary martyrs, he populates with those who, quote, A, explicitly demanded the privilege of martyrdom, or B, came forward of their own accord in times of persecution and made a public confession of Christianity, which was bound to lead to their execution, or C, by some deliberate act, destroying images, for example, or assaulting a provincial governor while he was sacrificing, clearly invited arrest and execution. Between the poles of these volunteers and the ordinary martyrs, St. Croix slips in a third group he terms quasi-volunteers. These are those who, one, those in whom we cannot demonstrate a conscious desire for martyrdom for its own sake, but who were rigorists of one kind or another, going beyond the general practice of the church in their opposition to some aspects of pagan society. For example, Christian pacifists who refuse military service. Two, those who without, as far as we know, actually demanding or inviting martyrdom, deliberately and unnecessarily attracted attention to themselves. For example, by ministering openly to arrested confessors and hence brought about their own arrest. Three, martyrs who are not recorded to have been directly responsible for their own arrest, but who, after being arrested, behaved, behaved with deliberate contumacy at their trial. St. Croix's neatly and carefully delineated taxonomy runs into problems as soon as he begins to amass his evidence. He cites the martyrdom of the Virgin Patamiana as an instance of quasi-voluntary martyrdom type 3 because when threatened with rape, the emboldened maiden, quote, made some abusive reply for which she was immediately put to death, end quote. This categorization, however, is colored by St. Croix's evaluation of what forms of behavior are unreasonable, rigorous, or provocative. Patamiana's desire to avoid sexual violation, even at the expense of her life, is not out of keeping with the wider values of ancient society. Take, for example, Lucretia, Livy's chaste heroine, who commits suicide after her rape. Roman women were implicitly encouraged to commit suicide rather than risk their chastity, and for this kind of death, they were explicitly praised. We may not agree with this, but we must evaluate Patamiana's death against ancient cultural values. 
For a classicist, St. Croix has a remarkably modern way of evaluating what values are worth dying for. His classification system speaks more about the ideals of his own cultural context than that in which ancient authors found themselves. It should go without saying that the category quasi-voluntary martyr did not exist in the ancient world. Rather, the classification is ground in, grounded in St. Croix's assessment of the good death and his criteria for reasonable behavior. The retrojection of modern ideals is not limited to those who, like St. Croix and Gibbon, were critical of martyrdom. Even in the writings of self-consciously pro-suicide scholars who come closest to a reappraisal of the evidence, there has been a tendency to import modern conceptions of agency and suicide into ancient depictions of martyrdom. The most notable of these works, Arthur Droge and James Tabor's revisionist study, A Noble Death, has muddied the waters by showing how orthodox martyrs provoked their own deaths. Yet rather than questioning the terms of the discussion, they merely reverse the ideological binary and use the modern categorization of suicide to classify ancient sources. In recent scholarship, voluntary martyrdom has been most frequently associated with heretical groups. Since Clement, ecclesiastical and scholarly analyses of this subject have maintained that in the pre-Decian period, that is prior to 250 of the Common Era, it was the adherents of the new prophecy movement, or as they are more libelously known, the Montanists, who incorrectly and foolishly sought to become voluntary martyrs. Some scholars, such as Ronald Knox and Timothy Barnes, have even argued that voluntary martyrdom was so essential to the new prophecy that it was the feature that distinguished its adherents from the Catholics or the Orthodox. The assumption that adherents of the new prophecy were enthusiastic supporters of voluntary martyrdom has shaped the way in which martyrdom and Christian identity are narrated. As William Tabernay notes, some early Christian martyrs have been identified as Montanists merely on the basis that their conduct is deemed by a modern reader to be in some way antagonistic or provocative. An example of this is found in the case of Vettius Epigathus, a lawyer mentioned in the late second century letter of the churches of Lyon and Vienne. Vettius protests the ill treatment of the Christian prisoners and demands that he be allowed to offer a speech in their defense. His request is denied and he is asked if he is a Christian and answers in the clearest of tones that he is. On the basis of Epigathus's supposedly unnecessary intervention in the affairs, he has been judged by Kraft, Barnes and Carrington as a Montanist. There is nothing else in the narrative other than a very banal reference to the spirit that could possibly be used to identify him as a Montanist. Implicit in this system of categorization is not only the assumption that Montanists were voluntary martyrs, but also the notion that the orthodox, that is, those who are distinguished and distinguish themselves as non-Montanists, were not voluntary martyrs. Not only has voluntary martyrdom become an essential feature of the new prophecy movement, 
the new property movement has become the sole proprietor of voluntary martyrdom. In a succession of important publications, William Taverney has deftly demonstrated that adherents to the new prophecy were no more prone to voluntary martyrdom than the Catholics. Christine Trevet has followed Taverney, noting that Catholics sanctioned, by which she means condoned rather than condemned, um, behavior that was or was little short of voluntary martyrdom. Taverney and Trevet were in fact not the first to note this. But their work has been instrumental in exposing the extent to which the new prophecy movement has been mischaracterized and how notions of orthodoxy and heresy have been bound up in characterizations of martyrdom. His analysis has brought to the fore the extent to which the alignment of orthodoxy and heresy with specific forms of martyrdom is a rhetorical construction. Implicit in Tabernay and Trevet's work, however, as in other scholarship, is the assumption that voluntary martyrdom exists as a separate identifiable category in the ancient world. Tabernay debates the exclusive alignment of the new prophecy with voluntary martyrdom, but he does not contest the existence of voluntary martyrdom as a separate ideological construct. The same criticism can be leveled against Droge and Tabor, who insists that from the second century on, voluntary martyrdom was practiced and idealized by both orthodox and heretic. It is worth noting that there is no Greek or Latin term for a voluntary martyr. The lack of terminology is interesting, not because technical terms are necessary or a prerequisite for something's existence, because they're not, but because the use of the term martus has played such an instrumental role in scholarly discussions of the emergence of martyrdom. If we think of studies on the emergence of martyrdom by, by Norbert Brox, Theofried Bauermeister, or Glenn Bowersock, we are immediately struck by the prominent role that the linguistic term martus plays in the genesis of martyrdom. Yet with voluntary martyrdom, where there are no linguistic terms to serve as guides for scholars, we feel free to work with assumptions and highly personal taxonomies about what makes martyrdom provoked or voluntary. The dearth of terminology is matched by the homogenous treatment of voluntary and normative martyrs. When Christians were executed, whatever their communal affiliation or the role they played in their own arrest. They were either memorialized as martyrs or they were excised from history. In second century martyrdom accounts, those martyrs identified by <coughs> scholars as voluntary martyrs are labeled, treated, and memorialized no differently in ancient sources than those who are simply termed martyrs. it is worth stepping back and asking whether or not volunteerism was singled out as distinct from other martyrological practices in ancient discourse. Would an ancient Christian necessarily have viewed self-offering or voluntary martyrdom as something different from just martyrdom? Instead of looking at instances of execution that we might judge to be voluntary or provocative, we should first ask, 
when it was that early Christian authors started distinguishing between different kinds of martyrdom. Before turning to the ancient evidence, it is fitting to offer two caveats. First, there are discussions in antiquity that can be said to parallel or inform the provoked-unprovoked martyrdom binary. Despite Drogen Tabor's insistence that suicide was accepted before Christianity, not everyone was accepting of self-killing. To the explicit, nuanced discussions of suicide in Epictetus, we could add the ambiguous <coughs> characterization of Sophocles' Antigone. Of course, even in these cases, we could argue the finer points about whether or not Antigone's death is, say, voluntary. The point is this. While there are discussions about self-killing in antiquity that could illuminate our understanding of voluntary martyrdom, it would be a mistake to prematurely import these conversations into a discussion of martyrdom in order to give substance to the category of voluntary martyrdom. Rather than assuming that certain distinctions between provoked and unprovoked martyrdom are necessary and instinctive, it is more appropriate to begin with early Christian discourse about martyrdom itself. Second, and on a related note, the condemnation of Christian efforts to achieve martyrdom by their Roman contemporaries is not evidence for the existence of voluntary martyrdom. To be sure, some Roman intellectuals like Celsus characterized Christians as being, quote, out of their mind for rushing forward to death. But Celsus's condemnations were leveled against all Christians, not some special group. Celsus isn't distinguishing between different forms of martyrdom, one of which he labels headstrong. Celsus thinks that all Christian martyrs, and thus all Christians, are headstrong and insane. Moreover, there is no evidence to suggest that Celsus's Christian interlocutors agreed with him. While some, like Bowersock, have used Celsus to posit an early Christian distinction between voluntary and normative martyrdom in the early church, this presupposes that the Roman sources have a better understanding of Christian theologies of martyrdom than extant Christian literature. The tendency to use Roman perspectives on Christian martyrdom to construct a history of the spread, shape, and nature of martyrdom as it really was is widespread, yet nonetheless fraught with problems. When we turn to extant material from the second century, however, the task becomes more difficult. Evidence for voluntary martyrdom as a category can only be amassed from texts that distinguish between forms of martyrdom. And these, distinguish, these distinctions are never neutral. Within second century Christianity, we need to look hard for a text that makes this kind of distinction. And in fact, I would argue there are none. The demarcation of different kinds of martyrdom and the rhetorical formation of the true martyr began in earnest with the very late second, early third century Christian philosopher Clement of Alexandria. Alexandria, the home of Clement until his flight from persecution in the early years of the third century, was a bustling city second in size only to Rome. 
Herman wrote neither martyr acts nor apologies. His ideas about martyrdom appear mostly as part of large discussions of virtue in his voluminous work, The Stromata. If there were early accounts of the deaths of martyrs, such as the execution of Batamiana and Basilides in, in Alexandria around 205, Clement does not appear familiar with them, nor does he supply much information about persecution in this region during this period. His occasional references to martyrdom highlight the training and composure of the martyrs. It was, he says, quote, fear that derives from the law that trained the martyrs to show piety even with their blood. Clement's interest is not in the sources of persecution, but the foundations of perseverance. His interpretation of historical instances of martyrdom tied that martyrdom to discipline, training, and the exercise of piety. As one of the first systematic theologians to discuss martyrdom at any length, Clement is often assumed to be innately pro-martyrdom rather than just cautiously supportive. Where he differs from his other proto-Orthodox contemporaries like Tertullian, he is treated as offering what Annerys van den Hoek calls merely a, quote, reflective approach on martyrdom. The characterization of Clement as thoughtful is fascinating. It is certainly the case that Clement was a philosopher and philosophy takes some thought. But the function of this characterization is to normalize Clement's perspective. Any hesitancy or reluctance on Clement's part to endorse certain forms of martyrdom is cast as the logical consequence of giving the subject any thought. A thoughtful person, the argument seems to go, would agree with Clement. Len Bowersock goes further and argues that Clement's use of the term martyr wrests it from the heretics and returns it to its original meaning. He writes this, Clement's analysis of martyrdom returned prudently to the original sense of that word. He is trying to turn the very word back to its original sense of bearing witness. It seems that Bowersock is captive to Clement's rhetoric. Clement isn't returning to some platonic form of the Greek term martus or describing things as they actually exist. He is creating meaning. The notion that there is some true meaning embedded in the characters that make up a word removes Clement from his historical and rhetorical context. Clement, in fact, narrows the practice of true martyrdom. He discursively carves out an image of the true martyr that is distinct from the foolhardy self-exposure of those who rush to death and from the reluctance of heretics to consider martyrdom. In articulating the landscape of martyrdom in this way, Clement positions himself as the via media between these two extremes. So I will read you what he says. Now some of the heretics who have misunderstood the Lord have at once an impious and cowardly love of life, saying that the true martyrdom is the knowledge of the only true God, which we also admit, and that the man is a self-murderer and a suicide who makes confession by death, and adducing other similar sophisms of cowardice. To these we shall reply at the proper time, for they differ with us in regard to first principles. Now we too say that those who have rushed on death, for there are some, not belonging to us, 
but sharing the name merely, who are in haste to give themselves up. The poor wretches dying through hatred to the creator. These, we say, banish themselves without being martyrs, even though they are punished publicly. For they do not preserve the characteristic mark of believing martyrdom inasmuch as they have not known the only true God, but give themselves up to a vain death as a gymnosophist of the Indians to useless fire. On one hand, Clement condemns those who have charged forward to martyrdom. These enthusiasts are aligned with exotic and antiquated practices of the gymnosophists, practices that had cultural value in Clement's day, but a value that here he rejects. Clement rhetorically expels this group from his community and debases and negates the significance of their death. They are not, he says, true martyrs. They are without witness. They are amateurs. The practice of this supposed group is not only rendered by barbaric and exotic, but is elsewhere interpreted by Clement as simplistic. In his exegesis of Matthew 19.29, Clement distinguishes between simple martyrdom, which is just death, and true Gnostic martyrdom. The latter, writes Clement, entails a life lived purely in knowledge of God, without passion, and in obedience to God. This life involves perpetual witness to death, but that death can be either natural or unnatural. In this way, Clement subtly denigrates the accomplishments of simple bodily martyrdom. On the other hand, Clement also deplores the stance of the heretics, here understood by many to be Gnostics, who, un who avoid martyrdom altogether out of impiety and cowardice. Given the synonymy of masculinity and courage in antiquity, the description of this group as cowardly is emasculating. It subtly feminizes its members and elides the rational basis for their position. It seems that Boyarin is correct when he describes Clement's approach to martyrdom as ambivalent. The distinction between Clement's position and those of his Gnostic counterparts are hardly the radical breaks in thought that his rhetoric leads us to believe. In pushing the heretics to the margins, Clement acquires power. In creating and claiming the middle position, he also assumes the rhetorical high ground that the Aristotelian mean affords him. His own perspective, grounded as it is in a philosophy of love, emerges as the middle course, and thus as the default position on martyrdom. Much has been made of the ways in which Clement is influenced by the positions of his opponents and takes a reasonable middle position between them. Much more should be made, however, of the ways in which Clement creates this middle position and sets himself firmly on it. Scholars have tended to treat Clement's categories of true martyrdom, enthusiasm, and anti-martyrdom as an adequate description of the various positions on martyrdom in his day, and even to this day. Yet perhaps he is more constructive than descriptive. Unclear, for instance, is the extent to which ancient Christians before Clement saw rushing forward to martyrdom as a practice distinct from other forms of martyrdom. We must look beyond Clement's rhetoric 
to the ways in which the true martyr was shaped in the early church. After Clement, the earliest evidence for distinct forms of martyrdom comes from the third century martyrdom of Polycarp. You will, for the purposes of this talk, just have to take my word for it that the martyrdom of Polycarp is third century. <laughs> in a textually difficult passage toward the beginning of the account, the author describes the actions of a man named Quintus. But there is a person named Quintus, a Phrygian who had recently come from Phrygia, who was overcome with cowardice when he saw the wild beasts. This is the one who compelled both himself and several others to turn themselves in. But the insistent pleas of the proconsul convinced him to take the oath and offer sacrifice. Because of this, brothers and sisters, we do not praise those who hand themselves over, since this is not what the gospel teaches. The author of this account counterposes the conduct of Polycarp and that of Quintus. Whereas Polycarp sought refuge outside the city, Quintus offered himself for execution. Whereas Polycarp went through with his martyrdom, Quintus recanted at the last moment. Polycarp's reticence is twice described in biblical terms as a martyrdom according to the gospel, first in the opening to the letter and later in chapter 22. Polycarp's prudent self-withdrawal, cast here as patience, serves an exemplary function, for just as the Lord did, he too waited that he might be given up. The scripturally and mimetically framed contrast between these two figures nudges the reader toward the example set by Polycarp and away from Quintus's rash and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to seek death. The two extremes on Clement of Alexandria's spectrum are combined here in a single apostatizing figure. The rhetorical alignment of self-offering and refusal of martyrdom in the figure of Quintus is a particularly clever denunciation of voluntary martyrdom. We should note again, however, that the model of martyrdom offered by Polycarp involves an initial step of withdrawing oneself from persecution. Further evidence for the emergence of voluntary martyrdom as a discrete practice is found in the translation and editing of the Greek account, The Martyrdom of Carpus Papalus in Agathonike. In the original Greek account, Agathonike is a bystander from Pergamon who immolates herself on the pyre of the two primary martyrs. There was a woman named Agathonike standing there who saw the glory of the Lord as Carpus said he had seen it. Realizing that this was a call from heaven, she raised up her voice at once. Here is a meal that has been prepared for me. I must partake and eat of this glorious repast. And taking off her cloak, she threw herself joyfully upon the stake. Although Agathonike has been adjudged a Montanist, the fact that she provokes her martyrdom is the only proof that this is so. More importantly, however, there is nothing in the Greek text to suggest that her death should be viewed differently or of a different type than that of the other martyrs. In fact, here she's explicitly compared to Carpus. She saw the glory of the Lord as Carpus saw it. 
The same point can be made with respect to other early figures deemed voluntary martyrs. In the case of Lucius in Justin's Second Apology, Alexander Atlas in Vettius Apagathus in The Martyrs of Lyon, Paeon in the Acts of Justin, and Proclus in the Acts of Firmus and Rusticus, there is nothing in these second century accounts that marks their deaths as different from those of the other martyrs in their respective accounts. Working sometime after the events, at earliest in the Decian period, the Latin translator of the martyrdom of Carpus, Papalus, and Agathonike altered the account so that Agathonike is arrested with the other martyrs. She also receives a thorough separate trial in front of the proconsul. The emendation of the text firmly demonstrates that her death was problematic for the translator of the Latin version who seems to have balked at the idea of a martyr throwing herself into the flames by her own volition. By explicitly noting her rest at the beginning of the account, the translator renders her death acceptable to an audience that would not have been comfortable with this kind of death. In other words, we can assume on the part of the translator and his or her audience a cultural distaste for volunteerism. We must assume that Agathonike's self-immolation was unproblematic for the Greek author, but that during the period between the original composition of this text, around 180, and the editing of the work in the middle of the third century, a sense that this kind of death was undesirable has developed, at least in this community. In De Corona Militis, written around 211, Tertullian relates a story of a young soldier executed for refusing to wear a wreath at the distribution of a donative. Apparently, some members of the Christian community in, at Carthage had decried his actions as headstrong, rash, and too eager to die. Encountering this opinion, Tertullian's language is no less polemically and rhetorically charged than that of Clement, but it is noteworthy that he seems unaware of the category of voluntary martyr. The pragmatic concern of others in the Carthaginian community, Tertullian tells us, was that this man's actions would threaten the peace. It is not at all clear that they objected to volunteerism on <coughs> philosophical grounds, but rather that they're concerned about the political ramifications of this kind of act. It seems that the discursive production of voluntary martyrdom as a practice distinct from true martyrdom begins in the early third century with Clement. Whether his Christian predecessors or contemporaries shared this distinction is not at all clear. We can, however, note different lines of tension in the work of his contemporaries. For the Carthaginian Tertullian, the line between forms of martyrdom cuts not between voluntary martyrdom and normative martyrdom, but between those who flee from persecution and those who are martyred. While Tertullian is willing to accept flight from persecution in preference to apostasy, is generally disapproving of the practice. And sometimes he will even call it apostasy itself. That the spirit encourages martyrdom rather than flight creates a dichotomy between two possibilities. 
But there is no discernible difference in his writings between voluntary martyrdom and martyrdom. For Tertullian, voluntary martyrdom is martyrdom. By contrast for Clement, who is reported to have fled the Severan persecution in Alexandria in 202, and for the author of the martyrdom of Polycarp, who justifies Polycarp's flight to the countryside as patience, the condemnation of voluntary martyrdom as a distinct phenomenon actually serves to justify initial flight from persecution. Unlike Cyprian of Carthage, Clement never returned to face his death. It would be reasonable to suppose that for Clement, the point at which martyrdom becomes necessary is the point at which, with back against the wall, one is forced to confess or deny Christ. The discursive production and condemnation of voluntary martyrdom serves to shape flight from persecution as patience. Where voluntary martyrdom is parsed as passionate foolishness and excluded from true martyrdom, initial flight from execution is presented as true martyrdom or martyrdom in accordance with the gospel. Martyrdom and flight read one another. Clement's strategy has been remarkably effective. But the terms of debate have shifted from the defense of flight in times of persecution to an attack on enthusiasm. And the accusation of volunteerism has been added to the lexicon of early Christian polemic. Yet the lines of tradition do not run straight from Clement until the present day. There are many historical moments in which eager martyrs have been praised and valorized, not only because the actions of one's own martyrs are always good, but because volunteering has sometimes been idealized. Even after Clement and Origen, the binary is by no means set. It is worth reflecting, therefore, about how and why it is that the historical study of martyrdom has so readily taken up Clement's so-called moderate position. Whether voluntary martyrdom is inextricably bound to modernism or not, modern studies of early Christian martyrdom assume the existence of voluntary martyrdom as an ancient category of analysis. Beneath the surface of these 19th and 20th century histories of martyrdom, which insist on divorcing voluntary martyrdom from normative martyrdom, lies a commitment to a particular characterization of natural human desire. This interest in the natural began much earlier. Early modern discussions of what was then termed eager martyrdom viewed it as fundamentally unnatural. In his debate with John Collett on the Passion of Jesus, which he published in 1503 as the short debate concerning the distress, alarm, and sorrow of Jesus, Erasmus argues that Jesus overcoming a fear in the Garden of Gethsemane is exemplary as, quote, Jesus does not expect us to go against nature and show eager joy amid great torments, end quote. This interest in the naturalness of fearful martyrdom is developed by Thomas More, who treats the Gethsemane agony as exemplary for Christian martyrs such as himself. 
While Moore sees martyrdom as the product of grace, he, like Erasmus, building upon the work of Aquinas, sees martyrdom as antithetical to human nature. Nature, writes Moore, is disposed to resist. And thus the Gethsemane agony serves as an example for those of, quote, such a delicate constitution that they would be convulsed with terror at any danger of being tortured. Moore regards both eager and fearful martyrs as exemplary, but by identifying eager martyrs with the high-spirited martyrs of the early church and the timid martyrs with the superior example of Christ, he elevates the fearful martyrs above the eager ones. Even as they respect their subjects, both Erasmus and Moore see martyrdom as unnatural and the fearful reluctance of Christ as intrinsic to human nature. It should be noted that even though the presentation of martyrs as imitating Christ is ubiquitous in the ancient world, the reluctant fearfulness of the Gethsemane agony only becomes exemplary in the early modern period. It is never cited as such in the early church. The discourse of the natural is inherited and reframed by later generations of scholars. Gibbon uses the same language in his assessment of Ignatius of Antioch's letters. He writes that Ignatius's letters are, quote, repugnant to the ordinary feelings of human nature, end quote. This is language that Gibbon elsewhere reserves for deviant sexual crimes and torture. It is not by chance that Gibbon selects Ignatius here, for Ignatius has a tendency to bring out the worst in historians. A veritable pantheon of scholars have taken turns policing the divide between voluntary martyrdom and involuntary martyrdom and condemning Ignatius's position as, quote, deviant and perverted, end quote. That's from Friend. In the study of Ignatius, some have translated, have, um, pathologized his volunteerism into actual historical events. John Malala's 1831 chronographia states that Ignatius provoked his martyrdom by insulting the emperor at Antioch. While Ignatius is eager for martyrdom, the suggestion that he insulted the emperor deliberately in order to bring about his death is completely without evidence. The scholarly invention of an apocryphal Ignatian tradition seems grounded in nothing other than a caricature that constructs history on the foundations of modern assumptions of normality. The pathologizing of martyrdom is particularly evident in the writings of Donald W. Riddle, who sees martyrdom as a form of brainwashing-induced insanity. You can, you can brainwash people into insanity. Um, W.H.C. Friend and Glenn Barasok call Ignatius abnormal, pathological, and bordering on mania. The post-Freudian diagnosis of the martyr's desire as dementia is more than an inappropriately pejorative comment that breaches the early 20th century historian's self-professed code of impartiality. It betrays a commitment to a particular construction of natural human desire and well-functioning mental state to an assumption that it is natural to want to live and that to desire otherwise is a sign of mental dysfunction. The desire to diagnose and alienate the other is part of an assumption of self-normalcy. 
This normalizing impulse extends even to language itself. To return from a moment to Gibbon, he calls the transformation of the term martus in the early church a distortion of its true meaning. According to Gibbon, even language is susceptible to the distortive effects of martyrdom, this ideological disease. The pervasive understanding that the desire to die is unnatural, and perhaps also more specifically, a feature of insanity in the 20th century, informs our understanding of why scholars have insisted that voluntary martyrdom was something different. We might contrast modern interest in martyrdom as unnatural with the opinion of the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who writes that, quote, it is natural for all Jews from birth onwards to revere the Holy Scriptures and, if necessary, voluntarily to die for them, end quote. Josephus is, of course, but one ancient historian, and his views are not indicative of those of Clement or many others. The salient point is that modern discourse about voluntary martyrdom does not reproduce ancient discourse, even in those cases where both modern scholar and ancient writer agree that voluntary martyrdom is bad. The representation of voluntary martyrdom as unnatural or insane is not the same as the characterization of self-offering as rash, headstrong, cowardly, or feminine. They may both be negative, but they are not identical. It is not even the case, then, that modern scholarship has reproduced one marginal position in an ancient debate, essentialized it, and retrojected it into the second century. Modern scholarship on voluntary martyrdom has failed to reproduce any ancient position at all. What can we say then in conclusion? There is startlingly little evidence for the existence of the category voluntary martyr in second century martyrological discourse. Early Christian hagiographers did not treat the death of those individuals, whether benignly Catholic or ambiguously Montanist, identified by scholars as voluntary any differently than they treated the deaths of the normative martyrs. Early Christian authors appear to have become interested in delineating volunteerism from normative martyrdom only in the context of defending self-withdrawal in times of persecution. The invention of true martyrdom by Clement has been ingrained in modern scholarship on martyrdom, yet it is by no means clear that Clement was paradigmatic for ancient Christians. In calling for a revision of the application of these categories in the ancient world, it is not necessary to reduce martyrdom to a single phenomenon, ideology, or practice. It is not the case that all instances of unnatural death were the same in antiquity. There are tensions between different ideologies of martyrdom, and there are differences in the way that ancient Christians understood the significance of death for Christ. Yet if the agenda of the modern scholar is to, to describe the landscape of early Christian martyrdom in its own terms, then ancient principles, rather than modern instincts, should govern the terms of the discussion. Thank you.
that you can field questions uh, all on your own. Um, we have a mic here. Do you think that we need that, or can we shout out our questions? So, um, have at it. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Henning. Discursive practices, how do you identify the discursive practices of martyrdom in antiquity and what kinds of distinctions do you make in your own work um, of, in terms of the historical reality of martyrdom? Right. Um, okay, so in terms of, I identify in my book a variety of different ideologies of martyrdom and I'm looking really in terms of ancient social and intellectual contexts that gave these different ideologies um, force. So it's organized geographically. Um, I do think, however, that once we sort of deconstruct Clement's divide, we need to look, for example, at, say, um, one discursive move seems to be those who are interested in martyrdom as sacrifice and those who are not. And this has, um, the discovery of the Gospel of Judas has been really key in positioning Gnostics on the anti-sacrifice, anti-martyrdom side. But there are in fact Orthodox Christians, I would argue the author of the letter uh, of the, uh, to the churches of Leon and Vienne also is against the presentation of martyrdom as sacrifice. And in fact, sacrificial imagery is only invoked in that text on the part of the Romans who are enjoying the deaths of the martyrs sort of cannibalistically as sacrifice. So I think that there are both geographical ideologies. These are not hermetically sealed from one another. There's trade, there's commerce, there's correspondence. But I do think that um, there are sort of different um, social locations, philosophical martyrdom in Rome versus Imitatio Christi in Asia Minor. Um, but then there are other sort of discursive practices that, um, whereas previously people have um, distinguished between forms of martyrdom based on um, different forms of doctrinal orthodoxy, so the Gnostic position, the Monsignist position, and then the Orthodox position, I think there, there's much more sort of alignment, um, and I don't think that doctrinal differentiation is the way to go. I would say geography. Thank you for, for your uh, wonderful presentation. Um, throughout, you give the distinct impression, and I think this is the case, that the early Christian writers do not explicitly appeal to uh, Christ's death or the death of Stephen for martyrdom. This is the impression that was oh. left here now. Is um, the, when you, as you move from the Maccabees through these, is there a, a kind of unstated uh, dimension in your talk that everyone is thinking about martyrdom and qualifying it somehow in relation to the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen? Yeah, oh, I apologize if I gave that impression. Um, I wrote a whole book about the death of Jesus and how important that was for martyrdom. Um, what I don't think they appeal to is the, is the Gethsemane agony. That goes unremarked upon. You know, the Lucan Jesus, the Johannine Jesus, the good 
self-control Jesus. That's who they appeal to. Um, the death of Stephen is an interesting case um, because Stephen is cited in many Christian traditions as the first martyr, but that tradition drops out. So in martyrdom texts, um, the only people to specifically appeal to Stephen in the second century are Irenaeus and the letter of the churches of Lyon and Vienne appealing to Stephen as martyr and martyrological example, which means that we're basically saying people in Gaul um, or if you think the lot of the Churches of Leon and Vienna is by Irenaeus, Irenaeus um, which is, you know, in contrast to what people argue, no one else appeals to Stephen um, until the fourth century. So the sort of, the, the um, I don't think Stephen is that key, and I think that's something that needs, needs to be said, um, but I do think that the death of Jesus was tremendously influential. There be a follow uh, just one follow up then. Um, at one point, um, it appeared that perhaps language, vocabulary that could be followed, uh, it seems, uh, for earlier concepts, would not be martyr itself with some qualifying statement like voluntary mm -hmm. or involuntary, but handed over or given up. And in other words, or, mm -hmm. or and here um, there would be a difference between the synoptic gospels, mm -hmm. I would take it, where Jesus is handed over, paradidonai, or the gospel of John, where he lays his life down and then takes it up. And um, would you have a comment on this alternative vocabulary in relation to voluntary or involuntary, as you are talking about. Yeah, um, I, I do think that there's, certainly I think that um, scriptural vocabulary is being utilized once you have a historical context in which people are actually really being handed over um, or given up, um, which seems to me that only really happens, I'm fairly skeptical about the Pliny Trojan correspondence, only really happens in the mid third century. The first quotation I gave from Cyprian that has the reference to being handed over I think that there is also an allusion here to the strict Roman legal distinction between confessio and professio. Um, and I, so I think that what's being invoked here in terms of um, giving people up and handing people over is the distinction in Roman law between how you treat people in these circumstances. Um, and um, I think that what um, the author of that text is appealing to is the idea that if you volunteer for something, um, you cannot um, technically be considered a, um, a, mart a witness or a martus. So I think that there's a lot of Roman legal terminology being played around with that is being informed by a rereading of scripture. Um, I think given that this is Carthage, these are Cyprianic traditions, um, and given how much Cyprian uses Matthew, I'd be inclined to say, and, and John, I'd be inclined to say that something's happening. I generally don't, um, I don't identify specific Matthean versus Johannine interpretive traditions in second and third century texts because I'm not sure that we can clearly demarcate different lines of reception in those texts. Um, and because I haven't seen it, um, I think, we can quite clearly exclude Mark, um, and Mark is distinct from Matthew, um, because 
anything distinct from Mark is, is really not picked up. Um, Margaret Mitchell's work um, has seemed to argue, I think maybe a tiny bit too forcefully, that the ideology of martyrdom is informed by Matthew as opposed to anything else. And I, we do see Johannine motifs, not in Carthage, but elsewhere, that seem really important in those contexts. I'm going to insert a question before I hand it over to Ian, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, I was really very grateful for the um, striking that note of the pathologizing of martyrdom and, and the notion of irrationality or lack of normalcy. I see the same thing in our view of Muslim martyrs, for example, that that's simply defined as irrational. Right. And my question is, to what, and this in some sense cuts to Vernon's line about what goes without saying, to what extent do you think a sense of the resurrection hope is implicit or explicit here? Because if one really does, anticipate suffering with Christ leads to sharing eternal life, then it's utterly rational. I mean, there's, it's a perfectly logical sort of procedure. It doesn't have to be illogical at all. Mm -hmm. um, is it there or is it implicit or is it just absent? Yeah, it, it is utterly rational. Um, I, you know, I, mod, it seems to me that martyrs, all martyrs, with the exception of one, Apollonius, who says that even if there's no resurrection, he'll die for Christ because Christ taught him how to live well. You can't help but love Apollonius for that. Um, but everyone else thinks that they're going to be resurrected from the dead, and not just will they be resurrected from the dead, um, but they will go to heaven directly while we wait. And that when they get there, they will get superior rewards. They seat at the heavenly banquet. They seat on the throne of God. Um, I, I see that the, there are considerable advantages to being a martyr. Um, particularly in uh, ancient Christianity, in which post-baptismal sin was a big issue. Yes. Um, so yes, it's very rational, and to us, once you know that, it sounds a little uncomfortably like Muslim martyrdom, which is something that we spend a lot of effort excluding yes. from modern contemporary discussions. Yes. Um, obviously, one subtle agenda of a talk like this is that we do not have the sort of ethical high ground when it comes to volunteering. You know, and moreover, there were ancient Christians who were pretty violent too, um, not just in their rhetoric, but in practice. Um, I would say, however, that this was that dying for a cause was highly regarded in lots of ancient settings. Um, you know, Socrates says it's not living, but living well that's good. You know, we have all of these examples of people who die the good death. So not only is it rational. It's valued very highly in ancient culture. Seneca's discourse. Seneca, Socrates, uh, Lucretia, um, you know, there, there are just sort of manifold examples of people dying in ways that we might think were slightly unnecessary. Does Antigone have to bury her brother so much that she's going to get executed for it? You know, I always have students who tell me they think that that was suicidal because they don't think it was worth it. So it's both rational. And this is something that was highly regarded. Uh, I just have a question, given that it, it plays a reasonably good role in your argument, and I have no particular dog in the fight, mm -hmm. but I'm just wondering if you could say a few words about your dating of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. I will say, may, may I first say that even if I'm wrong, and in fact, I'm not, but, you, <laughs> no, but even if I'm wrong, one of the ways that you would keep the modern of Polycarp second century would be to say that the section about Quintus is a later interpolation. So when people have dated it um, early, many of them are in fact saying that this section about volunteering is from a later period. So, and has been interpolated into the account. So it doesn't destroy my argument. But why do I think Polycarpus, um, third century? When you have a text from antiquity and want to date it, um, the martyrdom of Polycarp presents itself as an eyewitness account of the death of Polycarp. Um, it uses the first person only to describe miracles at the beginning and the conclusion. If you do not think it is an eyewitness account, you cannot date it to um, the date at which Polycarp was killed, which is how people have been dating it. It's mid-2nd century because Polycarp dies in the mid-2nd century. Now, if you don't think it's an eyewitness account, and I do not, I think the slipping from first to third person is um, a touch suspicious. Um, to, to add to all of the historical and legal in, incongruities in the text, why is he being executed in the arena? Why is he being tried in the arena? The only other person who gets tried in the arena is Germanicus, who's also mentioned in the account. And apparently there's a lion within arm's reach when he's being tried. So theoretically, he could deny Christ and the lion might leap forward and he would be executed anyway. This is just not how you conduct a trial in antiquity. The Romans do have regulations about this. So I don't think that's what's happening. So then, so now we have an account um, and we don't know necessarily when it's written. The earliest evidence for its reception is the martyrdom of Peonius, um, which is mid third century. So my argument has been, it's written before then. It's very specific. Um, but I do, not, I do not see any evidence for um, its use in the other second century texts. In fact, one would have to say that if, say, the author of the Acts of Justin knows the martyrdom of Polycarp, that he dislikes it in that he has excluded it. Or one might say that no one read it if it, if it was out there. Um, so then you look at the things in the account. There are a number of independent things that lead me to the conclusion that it's probably first hard of the first half of the third century. So the reference to relics, um, not just that there's a reference to relics, but there's an apology for why they don't have the relics, presupposes that there's already a burgeoning cult of the saints. You don't have to apologize for that if other people don't have relics. Um, and that seems to me to be really a third century phenomenon. The anaphoral hymn, um, the anaphoral prayer in the account I have learned from my liturgy colleagues at Notre Dame, seems more like a third century and Afro prayer. Um, what else do we have? Um, we have the reference to the Catholic Church in Smyrna, as opposed to some other church. Now, sure, there are references to the Catholic Church in Ignatius, but um, again, it sounds like we have a distinction, a, a universal Catholic Church and specific Catholic churches. This seems to me more um, likely to be late. Um, there seems to be little mistakes that you couldn't have made close to the time, little sort of detail mistakes. Um, of course, and of course, martyrdom is highly theorized. You should be a martyr, you should not volunteer, um, don't make no mistake, even though martyrs imitate Christ, they're not as good as Christ. Now that kind of concern for the middle of the second century in our first martyrdom account 
this author apparently already knows what's going to happen in the third century when people start to confuse martyrs and Christ and the issues with in that period. There must be a first example for everything. So the fact that this polycarp could be first in one or two instances, I would believe, but the fact that there are so many seemingly independent elements of the story that fit better with a later date in the absence of any really clear evidence, I think that we have to assume that it's probably third century and that we simply cannot say with any specificity, well, you know, it's a summer's day in 207. Um, when someone sat down and wrote this text, I think, but we, I think we have to take that into consideration. We cannot merely proceed as if everything is fine here, particularly given the role that this text has played in closing the canon and um, describing the spread of martyrdom. Hi, thank you for your paper. As you were talking, my mind went to monastic literature, which as especially the persecutions ended, um, we get increasing statements about monasticism being a martyrdom, right? And so I wonder how uh, this seeming push toward understanding monastic ascetic life as martyrological, as sacrificial, um, fits into your reading of these texts. And so how do you, do you account for that approach? Do we see an aspect of voluntary martyrdom being transformed, you know, as it can no longer be acted upon? Uh, or what? I wonder how you would handle that. Yeah, I, I see the, I'm always slightly suspicious of, of people's motives. Um, I see the, after the end of martyrdom, the expansion of um, martyrological terminology for other sets of practices um, as, on the one hand, harnessing the rhetorical power of the martyr in those contexts, and also as domesticating martyrdom. So, you know, when Augustine says that a man who endures his sort of belligerent, nagging wife as enduring martyrdom, um, it, it sort of, it pulls martyrdom down, even as it elevates other sets of practices. Um, the relationship of monasticism to martyrdom is greatly discussed, you know, is this the new martyrdom? Um, whether or not it is, it's certainly utilizing the, the sort of the discourse of martyrdom in order to give real power to what monasticism is. Um, and so I see them as related, but being wary of the, just the wealth of literature on this and the, um, the emotional investment that scholars of monasticism have in the sort of monasticism as its own thing. I wouldn't want to just sort of trespass on that by just saying, oh, wow, well, it's just martyrdom. Um, now that you can't die, you can go out to a cave in the desert and not eat. Um, I think that there are, I think that that is um, informed by, you know, there already was aestheticism and sort of medical discussions about fortifying the body and things like that. So I see it as, um, utilizing the discourse of martyrdom, but having its own logic and metaphysics, even. Not quite separately. I mean, the fact that it is said to be like martyrdom um, sort of makes connections between martyrdom and monasticism, but I wouldn't want to just reduce monasticism at, um, to sort of what you do now that you can't die. 
there, there are social practices in antiquity um, of fasting and honing the body through the practice of taking cold baths and things like that. There are physical practices going on that have nothing to do with martyrdom that seem to me to also be informing um, the sort of the logic of monasticism. So I would just like to uh, go back to the martyrdom of Polycarp for a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, really enjoyed your uh, article. Thank you for Thank you. doing the force. Um, when Polycarp goes off by himself before his martyrdom, um, is that not an implicit refer reference perhaps to the Gethsemane Jesus? Or are you talking about explicit references to the Gethsemane Jesus? Uh, well, <clears throat> and was it, what, didn't Clement refer to Polycarp's martyrdom as a martyrdom according to the gospel? Oh, the modern Polycarp so calls itself a martyrdom according to... Oh, it, it self-identifies itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, okay. It is an imitatio Christi. Uh, it's funny for me to be saying, no, I really believe there's imitatio Christi in martyrdom accounts, um, because that's all I wrote about for the first part of my career. Um, what's not taken up from the Gethsemane agony is the fear and the begging. So Polycarp plays the man. Uh, Polycarp doesn't have to be nailed down. He can just stand there. Um, in some ways, if you want to view this text as in dialogue with the passion narrative, you'd have to say that Polycarp is more manly and exceeds the example of Christ, which I think is one of the reasons the editor of the account says he's just an imitator. So you don't get the wrong idea that Polycarp did this better. Um, this, this tradition of sort of um, taking the emotion and the sort of um, the pathos um, out begins with Luke's redaction of Mark. Luke and Jesus doesn't cry out um, in fear in the garden. Um, so uh, I think that there is um, a discomfort, and I think this was probably quite culturally widespread with um, you know, a good philosophical male um, would show some self-control, um, you know, just like Socrates would. So um, I think, you know, we ha it's a definite imitatio Christi, but there's no, none of the fearfulness of the Garden of Gethsemane. Candida, we're very grateful for, is there any other questions that somebody might have? Okay. Let me say thanks and let everybody else join me in saying thanks to you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Please visit us at emory.edu.